Discovering treasure is the stuff of childhood dreams and Hollywood movies. Yet, for Marius Stepien, an Edinburgh resident, it became a reality last August. He was using his metal detector in a field near Peebles when he came across a hall of 3,000-year-old Bronze Age artifacts, which included a horse harness and a sword still in its scabbard. Marius said this, I've never seen anything like this before and felt from the very beginning it must be something spectacular. I've just discovered a big part of Scottish history. I was over the moon, actually shaking with happiness. In fact, the hall, only the second from the Bronze Age to be found in Scotland, also included decorative straps, buckles, rings, and chariot wheel caps. Yes, chariot wheel caps. Now, all of these things are now in the possession of the Scottish Treasure Trove Unit, and the expectation is that Marius will receive a sizable reward for the treasure that he found. Now, it's unlikely that any of us will ever make a discovery like that in our own lifetime. I don't think many of us here are into wandering around fields or beaches with metal detectors. But actually, the reality that is that each of us is as much a treasure hunter as is Marius. You see, the very way we're wired means actually we are constantly on the lookout for that which we value highly. We organize our lives. We shape our priorities around those things that we treasure most. That's why over these next three Sunday evenings, I want us to have a look at this vital issue. I've named this mini-series for these three messages, Treasure Hunters, for that actually is what each one of us is. And I'm basing what I'm saying on part of the Sermon of the Mount that we read there in Matthew 6, 19 to 21, where Jesus says this to his followers, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And it's that last verse that's vital, where Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, just as the needle in a compass always points north, and I know I'm pointing south, but you, you know what I mean. You, you get a compass, and it's always going to be pointing to magnetic north, so your heart actually will always be going after that which you value as your treasure, that thing that you prize. You'll always be striving after that which you consider most precious. You see, your heart moves towards what you cherish. And God wants you to move towards him rather than towards the thousand and one other things that the world parades before our eyes. 
Now, the immediate context of this verse is related to money. It's related to material possessions. And that makes it such a vital subject for our consideration in the materialistic culture and generation in which we live. You see, we are money-obsessed. We're passionate, actually, about possessions. Indeed, researchers, I don't know how they do this, but they've determined that the average Westerner spends up to 80% of his or her waking hours making money, spending money, or worrying about money. In fact, in a frightening survey conducted by James Patterson, no relation, and Peter Kinn, they revealed how far people will go for money. They started with what you would do for five million, and then they asked people what they would do for three million, and then one million. Now, after one million pounds, the percentages came down drastically. However, for at least one million pounds, people said they would do these things. 25% said they would abandon their entire family. 23% would become prostitutes for a week or more. 16% would leave their spouses. 10% would withhold testimony and let a murderer go free. 7% would kill a stranger. And 3% would put their children up for adoption. You see, such is the grip of money in our society. And how easily we can find the obsessions of our society. They become our obsessions. And we discover that the world's agendas become our agendas. We discover that our whole world revolves around things that we own or that we hope to own. But we would be wrong to think that Jesus was only talking about money when he said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Actually, treasure comes in all sorts of shapes and sizes. And Jesus actually was talking about the attitude of mind and how we view all things that the world has to offer. For some here, their greatest treasure, that which you value and prize above all else, it can be your partner or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or even just the longing to be in a relationship. You see, it's the thing that consumes all their thinking. It shapes their behavior. It drives their motivation. For others, it can be their home. They love its comforts. The security it brings is vital. They, they live for the things that they put in their house or the way that they could decorate it or how it looks to visitors and friends. You see, it is their treasure. That's the direction that they're constantly moving in. For others, it can be the way that others view them. For whatever reasons, often born out of childhood experiences or family upbringing, this is the thing that drives them on. This is the thing that gets them out of bed in the morning. See, they want to be well thought of. They want to be respected. They want to attain a particular status in society or hold a particular position or to be regarded highly by their peers. And so when a promotion opportunity comes along, they grab it without thought of anything else because that's their treasure. That's where they're moving. That's where their heart is going. And for still others, their whole thinking is dominated by getting pleasure, by having thrills or enjoying a laugh or satisfying an appetite. 
and everything else is subservient to this. See, work is just a means of paying for the experiences and the, and the needs keep getting stronger and deeper and more controlling. It's, it's their treasure. In fact, driving here and seeing the number of joggers just uh, going uh, along the road, I, I was struck for many, actually, the, the, the God of the ages, our physical appearance. For some of us, it's well past that possibility, but for others... They are chasing after that physical image, fitness, health, feeling good, being able to put in the uh, 20K, the half marathon, the marathon. This is their God. It is what they live for, what they look forward to. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying that these things that we've mentioned are wrong or that they're incompatible with godly living. You see, it's not wrong to earn money. It's not even wrong to own shed loads of the stuff. It's not wrong to be deeply in love or committed to your partner. It's not wrong to have a well-ordered home. It's not wrong to succeed in your line of work. It's not wrong to enjoy the good things in life that God has provided. But that's not what I'm asking. I want to know what your treasure is. What is the thing that shapes your behavior and motivates your living and dominates your dreams and controls your thinking? Because if Christ is not your treasure, then something else most surely will be. And it might be one of those areas that I've mentioned. For Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And Jesus is absolutely clear that only one passion, only one treasure can dominate and shape our lives. For just three verses later, having spoken of this treasure, he then goes on to say this in chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. In other words, you cannot profess that Jesus is Lord if there's another treasure that you value more highly. He is either Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. He either has control of your heart, your thoughts, your emotions, your will, or something or somebody else does. You can't serve two masters. And so I need to ask you, as I've been asking myself over this last week, what is it that's controlling you? What's controlling us? What's your treasure? What's your heart? Really, really going after. I'm not asking about the cliches and the platitudes that we can roll out on a Sunday. Oh, Jesus is Lord. I'm saying, where is your heart really? What treasure are you really pursuing? And actually, you can often work out what is at the center of your life by checking on the emotional indicators in your life. Because they react when we fail to get the treasure that we're aiming for. You you see, you you can feel guilty at times. And, And when do you feel guilty? It may be because you're not 
in a powerful enough position or else you don't earn enough or your family aren't turning out as you wanted. And it's that emotion of guilt that reveals to your heart what really matters to you. Or ask yourself, what is it that gets you angry? When, when does it really annoy you? When do you suddenly break out? Because often that, is when, that happens when someone blocks you or interferes with your pursuit of that particular treasure. When does it happen? When do you get miffed and angry? It will reveal to you where your treasure really is. Or what is it that makes you fearful? If you long for the respect of others, then your life actually will be colored by the fear of man. You'll worship other people's opinions. And, and you're saying to yourself, why, why am I so variable in my opinions? Why am I here one day and there the next? It's because your treasure is approval from others. And if you crave acceptance, you'll be terrified of loneliness and rejection. You'll be a people pleaser. Or you'll give in to peer pressure and codependency. And if your treasure is comfort or pleasure or fun, then you'll worship money or prestige as gods who hold the power to bless you or to curse you. You see, there can be no compromise in this area of what your treasure is. And the whole purpose of this mini-series that we're going through is to teach and train each one of us how to see through the lies and the empty promises of this world and to be able to discern and recognize and appreciate and value above everything else the worth and glory and wonder of Jesus Christ. And sadly, history is littered with example after example of those who started strongly following Christ, only to fall when the allure and attraction of this world grew so strong. Even Paul's close associate named Demas found the Paul so compelling. Paul, in his last letter to Timothy, in fact, his, his very last letter, he was executed soon after, writes this, 2 Timothy 4, verses 9 to 10, he says to Timothy, do your best to come to me quickly for Demas, because he loved this world has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica because he loved this world. And you want to know why it is that older people are far more likely to have lost their spiritual sparkle and usefulness rather than young people who often display courage and zeal? It's because older people have become victims of treasure on earth. Another lover, another attraction, another treasure has insidiously, secretly, quietly replaced their first love for Christ. And in many cases, they don't even know it. That's why I find two short stories Jesus told amongst the most telling and powerful in the whole of his teaching ministry. Amy read them to us as she concluded the reading. You see, the first was about a man who found some treasure, recognized its value, and so paid all he had so that he could possess those riches. 
The other story was about the pearl dealer who comes across the most perfect, the most valuable pearl imaginable. And so he also pays all he has so that he could have the very best. Two people who were not disappointed. Two people who found satisfaction. And those listening to Jesus were able to relate to those stories. You see, they understood the settings because in that land of Palestine where there was a constant flow through of one invader after another, it actually became a treasure hunter's paradise for when the owner of a buried treasure died, and often you would take you, what you have when another of these conquerors was sweeping through, it was the most uh, fought over region in the world, you would take your treasure, you would bury it in the hope that you would still be alive a little bit later and you'd be able to go and dig it up. But so often that wasn't the case. You died or you were forcefully driven for the land and your treasure would be lost forever unless someone else discovered it. So in those days, it wasn't uncommon for a person who was plowing or digging in a field to accidentally come across treasure. So actually, Jesus' parable here described a very feasible situation. And with the story of the pearl, we find Jesus describing a merchant. You see, it was common for entrepreneurs in that day to look for pearls, to sell, and to look for high-quality pearls that they would use as an investment for themselves. For pearls in that first century were viewed in much the same way that we view diamonds today. They were the most valuable gem in the world at that time. If you owned a pearl, you owned a fortune. And actually, there was a good reason for the high price. Pearl hunting involved immense danger. The fine quality pearls were obtained from pearl oysters that lie at an average depth of 40 feet below water level. And therefore, they are harvested. They were harvested at great cost in human terms. Many people died while pearl hunting. See, in those days, if you wanted to get pearls, a pearl hunter would die, would tie a large rock to his body and would jump out off the side of his little boat, allowing the weight of the rock to carry him down to the oyster beds. And he risked danger from sharks and moray eels and other creatures to scour the mud below for oysters. And all the while, he had to hold his breath and hope he wouldn't drown. You could see why pearls were so precious. The Jewish Talmud said, pearls are beyond price. The Egyptians actually worshipped the pearl, and the Romans did the same. When women wanted to show their wealth, they put pearls in their hair. And when a Roman emperor wanted to show how rich he was, he would dissolve a pearl in vinegar and then drink it in his wine. In much the same way that today maybe a... a Millionaire stroke billionaire might light his cigar, you know, deliberately, ostentatiously using a hundred pound note to uh, light its end. So this parable describes a man who goes around looking for beautiful pearls and then sells them to retailers for a profit. But when he finds the most beautiful pearl that he's ever seen, the most perfect pearl, he sells everything that he has to obtain it for himself. So Jesus' listeners could relate to the events that he was describing, but they could also relate to the subtext, to the real message that Jesus was trying to get over. That to know Jesus 
as the king of your life is the most wonderful, glorious, satisfying experience that any human could ever know. It holds such a promise of joyful satisfaction that it's worth surrendering absolutely everything so that you might obtain it. Let me try and suggest to you ways in which the rule of King Jesus is like awesome treasure or priceless pearls. You see, firstly, in Jesus, we discover love that will never disappoint, that will never fade, that will never fail. Love so immense that Jesus should give his own life on a cross that we might go free. You see, look, here is the love that your heart's been aching for. Here's a love that is full and free and unconditional. And for some of us here, we we are just, we want that love. Our heart aches for that love. We've been disappointed so many times, but in Jesus... Jesus alone, we find that love that completely and absolutely satisfies. Secondly, in Jesus, we discover an answer to the nagging sense of guilt that plagues all that we do. Because of his work on the cross, Jesus is able to make us clean and new. He's able to deal with our past. He's able to deal with our shame. He's able to give us a fresh start and a new power, and how we've longed for such an opportunity. There are some of you, and you just look back, even on the last year or so, and you say, I've just so messed up. But here in the Lord Jesus Christ, you find the one who gives that new start, who gives that cleansing from guilt. And thirdly, in Jesus, we discover the reason for living. We enter into a relationship, amazingly, mind-blowingly, with the one who made and rules the universe. You see, no longer do we feel that we're the helpless victims of a cruel and impersonal fate, just the, the products of chance and random selection. No, rather we know that we've become children of the King of Kings. And life for us now is one of gratefully serving Jesus. And enjoying the many good gifts that he's lavished on us. Fourthly, in Jesus, we discover the answer to death. He's broken its hold over it. We know it's not the end. We know where we're going. And although we may naturally fear the process of dying, we do not fear death itself. It's but the door to glory, to seeing our Savior face to face. And fifthly, in Jesus, we discover a friend who will never leave us or disappoint us. We discover one who is altogether lovely, one of perfect goodness and meticulous care and infinite wisdom and true humility and radiant majesty and glorious purity. We discover in Jesus himself, intrinsically in Jesus, the greatest treasure that it would be possible to conceive of. And sixthly, we find our identity in him. When we become a follower of Jesus, I'm in Christ. I have my identity in Christ. It's not in what I do. It's not even how I perform. I'm not controlled by my feelings. I'm not controlled by the comments of others. I'm safe and secure in Jesus. Oh, well, this could go on and on. It's inexhaustible. There aren't sufficient words in this or any language to begin to describe the wonder of such a gracious Savior. 
But the vital issue is this. How do we obtain such a treasure? How do I make this saviour my saviour? Well, the answer actually is in the story. Once these men had recognised the worth of what they'd discovered, they gladly gave all they had so that they might possess it. This wasn't the case of them losing anything. This is a story of gaining everything. And my friends, so it is with Jesus Christ. When we discover that God is not distant nor hidden, when we discover that in love he has taken the initiative, when we recognize who Jesus is and what he achieved for sinners there on Calvary's cross, when we hear that his invitation is for anyone, anyone, anyone to come, then with joy we give full control of our lives over to King Jesus. This is no hardship. This is no loss. This is no dull straitjacket that I'm inviting you to come into. This is life and joy and purpose and peace. This is the forgiveness of my sins. This is coming home to the satisfaction that my soul has been yearning for. So next Sunday, we're going to be looking at the tests that we need to apply to the things of this world so that we might see them for what they really are. And we'll be developing some diagnostic tools in the hope that we might really be able to discern the difference between worthless dross and genuine treasure. Until then, we'll close with the summary words spoken by Jesus in Matthew 6, 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray. Sovereign God, we do need to realize that, that we are treasure hunters. We are, we are those who go after what we think is the thing that's going to bring us the greatest happiness or joy or satisfaction and it shapes everything. Father, we do pray that you'd give us the discernment to realize what's rubbish and unsatisfying and that with the help of your Holy Spirit, we would see Jesus for all he is. We pray that we would be able to grasp what he has done for sinners, grasp who he is, grasp again his amazing invitation grasp again what the Holy Spirit does in the lives of those who come in repentance and faith. We want to, indeed to thank you that Jesus is that treasure beyond all price. We pray, Father, for those here who as yet do not know Jesus as Lord and pray that you would give them eyes of discernment to see Jesus, maybe for the first time, and give everything to know him as their Lord and Saviour. And Father, for those of us who have loved you for many years, please would you keep our hearts after Christ. Save us from being seduced by the glittering prizes of this world, by the tawdry tinsel that this society seems to hang out before us. Father, keep us going after Christ with excitement and determination. For we thank you that in him we find 
the treasure of greatest worth. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.